From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler, hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told and you are among friends. And a great pleasure to be coming to you on this Remembrance Day. Zach North and I were out poppy tagging uh, on behalf of Legion Branch 75 in Toronto on uh, the weekend. A great honor and pleasure uh, to do that. And I know uh, their granddad, who was a veteran of uh, World War II, uh, would be uh, looking down or is looking down and very, very proud of uh, both North and Zach, who are re- just recently joined the uh, the Navy League Sea Cadets. Uh, the uh, the Honorable Paul Hellyer is standing by to discuss free energy and his new autobiography, Hope Restored, which he's just published. And our good friend Victor Vigiani will also join us in moments. Uh, later this hour, Rosemary Ellen Guiley for our monthly paranormal news roundup. We'll talk about the uh, infamous Cecil Hotel in Los Angeles, among other things, one of the most haunted hotels uh, in Los Angeles, perhaps haunted, most haunted locations uh, in Los Angeles, quite a remarkable uh, dark past, the Cecil Hotel. Uh, and then in hour two, psychic medium Siobhan Smith will be here. Psychic medium Siobhan Smith uh, will be here to tell us about her remarkable upbringing and uh, early life and her career, as I say, as a psychic medium. And once again, I am coming to you from my home studio up in Thornhill, technical producer Ian Robertson. He is back in Zoomerplex behind the uh, the big audio board. Live stream producer Ryan White is in his lair in deepest, darkest East York. And uh, producer, story producer Albert Vinzel is conducting a remote viewing experiment at an ashram somewhere in the uh, near the India-Nepal border. Uh, Hope Restored. My Life and Views on Canada, the U.S., the World, and the Universe is Paul Hellyer's autobiography, just published. It is a powerful book arguing that the human species is at a tipping point where it is forced to choose between a new world order, fascist government, committed to rapid depopulation, or a world of peace and justice. Humanity's choice is between the dark and the light. To follow the light means giving up atomic weapons, replacing the oil economy with clean zero-point energy developed by Americans in the 1960s, having governments create 34% of all new money for public purposes rather than borrowing it from the 62 elite banking families, a reconciliation of the two main branches of Islam, and a just settlement of the Israeli-Palestinian dispute to bring peace to the Middle East. Finally, He writes, it'll be necessary for all countries, races, and faiths, especially young people, to forgive past atrocities and work together in common common purpose to save the heritage they have in common. The Honorable Paul Hellyer, Canada's youngest member of parliament when he was first elected in 1949 and the youngest cabinet minister appointed to Prime Minister Louis St. Laurent's government eight years later, Although Mr. Hellier is best known for the unification of the Canadian Armed Forces and for his 1968 chairmanship of the Task Force on Housing and Urban Development, he has maintained a lifelong interest in macroeconomics, which led him to form Action Canada, a populist movement dedicated to the concepts of full employment and low inflation with an emphasis on quality of life issues. 
And through the years as a journalist and political commentator, he has continued to fight for economic reforms and has written several books on the subject. And again, his autobiography just released, Hope Restored. Paul Hellyer, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Delighted to have you. Let's uh, welcome also Victor Vigiani, Executive Director of Zeland Communications and the Zeland News Network. Victor's research and analysis of anomalous aerial phenomenon spans almost 40 years. His experience involves UFO sightings, report investigation, counseling, work with individuals reporting anomalous experiences, presentations, and journalism in the field of ET disclosure issues. Victor, welcome to you, my friend. Good evening, Richard. It's an honor and pleasure to be with you both. Thank you. Paul, let me uh, begin by asking you, let's focus on free energy. Could you have ever imagined, while you were serving in government, that one day, towards the final chapter, you would be writing about the possibility of free energy? No, I probably never did, but then um, when I was in government, I wouldn't have expected to be writing about just about anything that I've been writing about for the last uh, eight or ten years. I was really not up to speed in these many areas of, uh, of great interest. And I'm afraid that a lot of uh, political people today are in that same position. They just really don't know what's going on. And so, uh, as I've pointed out, this is my 15th and final book, and it's the third in the trilogy. The books were written four years apart, and the first one, Light at the End of the Tunnel, a survival plan for the human species, and... Uh, organized religions uh, beating each other up instead of cooperating. And then the second one, The Money Mafia, A World in Crisis, uh, talks about the cabal running the United States uh, <clears throat> for most of the last uh, 70 years, and the money monopoly, and, uh, and the monopoly on energy that uh, brings you back to the zero-point energy, which I'd never heard of, of course, when I was in uh, in politics. But it's the energy which exists everywhere in the cosmos. It's uh, free, and uh, the Americans uh, developed it in a concert with uh, one of the uh, visiting species. And the, they had it developed in the 1960s, and according to uh, one of the highly rated uh, People who had worked in Area 51 and Los, in, uh, near Las Vegas and uh, S4, and Dr. Michael Wolf, he said they had uh, developed both zero point energy and uh, cold fusion. But I think the one that um, has a, the most appeal is the zero point energy because it's uh, something you can put in a small box in your car. Or, or your tractor, or your uh, airplane, or your or your home, and provide you with perpetual energy. And uh, it's it's just amazing that the people that hold the patents on this stuff have been able to get away with it uh, for so many years and let the the world start going up in flames, is uh, one way of putting it. Instead of uh, instead of coming in with this wonderful wonderful solution to the 
oil economy and move into clean energy and uh, clean uh, air and clean other things. So it's it's really uh, a subject that uh, now intrigues me greatly and is high on my list because um, what I'm suggesting, amongst other things, of course, <coughs> is that um, having reached this tipping point, we have to start disarming or... Um, or perish, really, to put it bluntly. And we should start uh, disarming and making the money available that we save from reducing defense expenditures available to uh, use to produce uh, zero-point energy en- engines. Is it possible to have a free energy disclosure without... A UFO ET disclosure. Are they separate or do they have to happen simultaneously? Well, they're separate, but one may influence the other. This is something that's uh, hard to decipher. But certainly the Americans have had it under their control. Many people have developed uh, these uh, kinds of engines. But unfortunately, somebody, and one doesn't have to do too much guessing to know who it was, would come in and trash their their works, their their models, and uh, and uh, scare them to death, or or move them away, or do terrible things to them, just to keep the the um, <laughs> the technology secret. And it uh, it's it's worse than evil, in my opinion, because. Here we are with a, a world that's uh, it's heating at a speed which is so fast that if we let it go on like this for a few years, it's going to become virtually uninhabitable, and we could do something about it, but we're not. And in my opinion, that is uh, that is a disgrace. In my uh, book, the latest one that you mentioned, uh, I say that the leaders of the G20 are, are t- like 20 Nero's, I call them. Because you will recall that allegedly Emperor Nero was fiddling his, with his violin, playing his violin while Rome was burning. And here you have 20 leaders, none of them really coming to grips with one of the greatest, well, one of the greatest problems facing the, uh, the planet today. So it's uh, it's one of the serious things that we have to keep pushing, and uh, it's not all, but uh, it's it's high on the list. Of course, in uh, in recent years, you've become uh, very interested in extra the extraterrestrial presence and their their technology. In September 2005, you became the first person of cabinet rank in the G8 group of countries to state unequivocally UFOs are as real as the airplanes flying overhead, and Victor Vigiani. Uh, who joins us as well, was um, very instrumental in convincing you to come forward back in 2005. Victor, we're going to come up on a break here, and then we'll get you to ask a question or two to Mr. Hellier. Let me get a very quick take on you, whether you think that disclosure on free energy has to happen simultaneously as disclosure on UFOs, or whether it can happen separately from that. Actually, it's a it's a really good point, because... I look at the two issues, and I'm sure Paul would agree with me, as they are, in a sense, mutually exclusive. However, um, in, in another sense, uh, they're intertwined. And 
um, it, the difficulty arises that if we do consider uh, acknowledgement or discussion or more openness regarding the, the whole zero-point energy question, it automatically brings into the uh, into discussion uh, what kinds of propulsion systems do these ET craft uh, use. And uh, we, we can come to, the, to, to an agreement in, in saying that whoever and wherever these things are from, they definitely do not stop off at Jupiter to fill up with SO gas to, uh, on their way to our planet. They are using this exotic form of energy to move from one place to another within the cosmos or even interdimensionally. And the power and, and effectiveness of this, 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 this energy source is absolutely unbelievable. Uh, many of the physicists who are involved in this uh, can say, stated uh, very clearly, that one cup of this stuff, once we draw it from the quantum vacuum, could boil and evaporate all of the oceans on the planet. We're going to step away momentarily. We'll come back. I'll let you finish up on that thought, and then I'll uh, get you to weigh in with a few questions for the Honorable Paul Hellyer. His autobiography, Hope Restored, the third in a trilogy, his final book just released. More of our conversation right after this. This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And welcome back. The Honorable Paul Hillier is here along with Victor Vigiani, the Executive Director of Zealand Communications, and Mr. Hellier's autobiography just released, Hope Restored, My Life and Views on Canada, the U.S., the World, and the Universe. Victor, before the break, I was asking you to weigh in on whether or not disclosure, free energy disclosure, has to happen hand-in-hand with UFO ET disclosure. I mean, I would love to pursue that further, but time is tight, so I wanted to, to throw it over to you to ask a, a question of Paul. Yeah, well, the whole the whole question of the free energy is, is extremely important, but what needs to be asked really is a whole series of, of big questions about this issue. I know Paul has given them a lot of thought. There are a lot of other issues, you know, the abduction phenomenon and government documents and, and all of that, Paul. My question to you is the whole ET question in, in the bigger picture, what's pointing us in the direction regarding disclosure of the ET issue uh, for humanity as a species to really understand its place in the cosmos? I think that's one of the biggest questions that we can possibly ask ourselves about this issue. How, how do you feel about that? Well, first of all, let me um, say while I've got the chance that all three of my books are uh, available at your favorite uh, bookstore or Amazon, or if you want an autographed copy or an autographed copy to send to uh, someone for Christmas, that uh, it's available at my website, which is Paul Heller Web, all one word, paulhellerweb.com. But I think the, the, the biggest the biggest issue, and I don't know if we can cover it in the time we've got available or not, that is the irony that um, <clears throat> here we are, uh, talking about or celebrating in the, in a way that the hundredth anniversary of the armistice <clears throat> of the first world war, and uh, I guess what I am really concerned about most is that for the last seventy years somebody's been planning another round. So we've had World War One, which was unspeakably awful. And then World War II, which was also unspeakably awful, and they're both wars to end all wars. And then here, as we talk about what 
sacrifices have been made, we know that there are some people related to what happened in the Second World War who have been planning another round and have been working assiduously at that and have made great progress and that any time we could have them try to take over the world they, they call it the new world order but actually they want to establish a fascistic <clears throat> government over most or all of the all, all of the world and they in my opinion probably have the power to do it and whether they will do it soon you know, in a, in a week or a month or, or a year or two years, I don't know. But I know they've been preparing for 70 years, and they now have this space fleet, which, in my opinion, is probably capable of doing what they want to do. And they have also built a uh, an electronic fence around the world, which allows them to do things that would be impossible otherwise, and this is uh, related to their possible uh, uh, atomic war with Russia as a starting point before they take on the uh, the rest of the Western world. And this has all been going on without disclosure because the media have been keeping it from the public. They're controlled. They're controlled by a, a group that... Uh, um, are called the Bilderbergers, part of the cabal, which has been uh, in charge of the United States for years and years, and which has a, an iron grip on the United States. And uh, and the and yet the the leaders don't know what's going on. There hasn't been a president since uh, I guess uh, Truman, who has really been totally in the loop. And uh, as far back as uh, as uh, Eisenhower, the uh, the people who were brought into uh, the United States from uh, Germany at the end of World War II under Operation Paperclip, and then later the ones that Alan Dulles brought in when he was uh, head of the CIA and his brother was uh, Secretary of State, um, they, they they're they're in control. They were given new uh, new names and new CVs, and they were given positions of high authority in both the civil governments and the uh, and the armed forces, and so they they have been preparing. And just a word, another word on that: before the the uh, Second World War ended, both the uh, the uh, Council on Foreign Relations of the United States was making plans for an. M an empire greater than the one that Hitler was planning because they assumed that Hitler was ultimately going to lose. And then the the Germans themselves, the Nazis, when the United States came into the war and Russia came into the war and they realized that they were then outnumbered and outgunned and would, ultimately they would lose, they decided to plan the armistice, the surrender, but not to give up because they didn't accept the defeat. And they established uh, a headquarters in uh, Antarctica uh, sometime before the, um, the armistice, and they sent some of their best scientists and, uh, and engineers to Antarctica and uh, the support people necessary for them in order to um, be the nucleus for a government-in-waiting. Well, then along comes this 
really lucky streak of being allowed to go into the United States and, in effect, take over control of the most powerful armed forces in the whole world, unlike anything we have ever seen. So there are things that have to be done, and done really fast, to to keep this from happening. And that's one of the things that I discuss in uh, in my latest book, and uh, I, I list the seven things, six of them essential, and the seventh one uh, a good grace to the young Americans who are so concerned about uh, guns being pointed in their direction. And this this has to happen soon because if it doesn't, if if we don't start disarming um, and if the, the United States President and Congress do not start taking strong action to dismantle the apparatus that is there, including the CIA and the NSA and the DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, and, and then uh, the chemtrails and uh, so on, the, the fence, if they don't start doing that very soon, it's going to be too late. And uh, we're faced with a situation which is in many ways more dangerous than we faced in 1939 because then you could see the, the stormtroopers and the tanks all lined up. But you can't see this power that exists at the present time and which can be used in, a, in such a way. So, we have about, excuse me, Mr. Hellyer, we have about five minutes. I just wanted to quickly work in one quick one and then throw it back to Victor for one quick one. What is it going to take for this breakaway civilization that Richard Dolan has uh, sort of labeled, uh, this group that, that has uh, free energy? What is it going to take to pry that technology away from them? What is going to convince them that the rest of us should benefit from it? Well, it's, the only thing is, is total disclosure of what's been going on, and it means the Congress should uh, set up a, a, um, a joint committee um, and uh, uh, give an amnesty to the people who have been working in black ops and have been preparing for war, because a lot of them want to tell the truth and, uh, and disclose what's been going on, but the cost is too high. They lose their pension. They can be fined $10,000. They can lose all their rights of health care and so on. So the cost is too high. But there has to be an amnesty from the National Security Act so that the honest people, and their majority, I'm sure, are still in that category, so that the honest people can tell their American friends and relatives what they've been doing and what has to be done in order for the people to take back control of their country because that's what really has to happen they don't know that they're not in control of their country because it has been hidden from them but they do not have control of their country they haven't had for a long time and so we've got to get a method of disclosure and certainly if there was a joint committee set up, uh, it wouldn't take long for uh, honest people to come forward and say and uh, talk about all of the things that Victor and I are concerned about it, about and uh, in, a, in a forthright way and to produce the evidence to show that uh, 
things are in bad shape and something that has to has to be done immediately, basically to end the arms race, to ground the the space command until we can find out who's going to represent uh, the world in space and do these other things that are absolutely essential. Victor, we've just got a couple minutes. I'll get you to, uh, with a final question. Yeah, very quickly, Paul. Um, if if you could wave a magic wand and somehow, um, you know, have some sort of disclosure uh, happen tomorrow, and and uh, somehow the entire planet figures out that we're not alone in the cosmos and and that we're that we're being visited by off-world civilizations, what effect do you think that that uh, denouement would have? on the human species in recognizing all of the things that you described over the past uh, 15 or 20 minutes. Would that be sort of a sea change in how everybody sees everything going on on the planet? Well, I think there are two two different things. One, to find out what is going on in the cosmos. And the other thing is to find out what's going on at home. And if, in fact, maybe the uh, the people who are planning this uh, takeover of the of the world aren't working in concert with one species, which happens to be the species which is uh, the most aggressive. And uh, whether just people knowing that most species, and there are so many of them, uh, that most species are benign and want to uh, help us and be and to uh, accept us into the Galactic Federation, but this isn't going to happen until. Uh, people know what's going on and uh, and really take some measures to uh, to stop this uh, cabal, including uh, changing the monetary system and the banking system totally, and the other things that I have uh, have mentioned, because it's it's uh, it's so far advanced that just knowledge is not going to do it. Action is really what's required in this uh, basically spiritual battle that's going on in the cosmos. Paul Hellier, thank you uh, so much for this. And um, again, if people want to order the uh, the complete trilogy, the final chapter, of course, Hope Restored, the final uh, book in the trilogy, where do they uh, where do they find these books? At their favorite bookstore or Amazon. Um, or if they want an autographed copy, uh, either for themselves or to give to a friend at Christmas time, which is uh, coming very fast, I, uh, which I haven't quite come to grips with yet, um, they can get it from my website, which is paulhellyerweb, all one word, uh, dot com. And uh, all three books are there, available uh, there, and you can take your choice or buy all three, whichever you want. PaulHellierWeb.com. PaulHellierWeb.com, and uh, Hope Restored, uh, the final book in the uh, the trilogy. Correct. Paul, thank you so much for this. It's my pleasure, and best wishes. Victor, thank you as always, my friend. Give us a website for Zeland. ZelandCommunications.com. ZelandCommunications.com. Thank you. Best to you both. Thank you. Good night. Good night. When we come back, Rosemary Ellen Guiley and our Paranormal News Roundup. Stay with us. The truth is not out there. It's right here. 
The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. Uh, This half hour, we'll learn about how yellow fever turned New Orleans into the city of the dead and why moaning spirits are probably just in our heads, so say the debunkers, uh, the experiments that inspired Frankenstein, how fear can kill you, and the Cecil Hotel, L.A.'s most haunted hotel. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, of course, joins us once a month for our Paranormal News Roundup. She's a best-selling author, researcher, investigator in the paranormal, metaphysical, and related fields, including hauntings, psychic skills and protection, afterlife studies and spirit communication, cryptids, alien contact, and the interdimensional aspects of our extraordinary experiences. She has more than 65 books published on a wide range of topics, including nine single volume encyclopedias and reference work. Works. Her work is translated into 17 languages. Rosemary is pre- president and owner of Visionary Living, Inc., the website, VisionaryLiving.com, a publishing and media production company that includes Visionary Living Publishing and its imprints. And she is executive editor of Fate Magazine, Rosemary Ellen Guiley. Welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Hi, Richard. Well, I'm recovering from Halloween. October was seriously busy, always a good time. Joe and I spend um, Halloween up in Salem, and there's just a lot going on every year with activities and rituals and balls and um i give classes uh so um and winding down now from that time to put your feet up for just a bit excellent all right yeah i can't yes you'll take 10 minutes before you start writing your next book (laughs) (laughs) well as a matter of fact i just got a new one into production (laughs) oh my you're just incredible uh let's talk about new orleans and uh, obviously, you know, so much history there, and we, and, and no doubt, probably one of the most haunted locations anywhere. Uh, but tell me about how yellow fever swept through that city time and time and time again over a, a period of about a hundred years, and uh, perhaps that's why it's one of the most haunted locations in America. I go to New Orleans every year, and I've explored some of the haunted locations and visited the cemeteries and studied the history. It really is a fascinating place, and it literally is the city of the dead. It was ravaged by yellow fever from uh, the early 19th century into the early 20th century, and um, this was a, a terrible epidemic spread by mosquitoes, and um, the symptoms were horrible. What the victims went through, they had horrible deaths. Um, 1853 was one of the worst years for New Orleans, uh, and about 8,000 people died that year from yellow fever. Now, one of the interesting things about yellow fever is that uh, you had a 50-50 chance of surviving, And if you did survive, then you had kind of an immunity to it. And so uh, this created a very weird kind of um, pecking order in in New Orleans because if you had survived, you were called acclimated. And uh, if you were acclimated, you you couldn't spread the disease. You, You couldn't die, so you were a good employment bet. Um, you could be admitted into better social circles, um, and if you were not acclimated, then uh, you were considered to be quite disadvantaged and very vulnerable. And, of course, a lot of the immigrants fell into that category. Well, who was most affected by this? The black slaves. 
And uh, there was even a rumor that spread for a while that um, blacks were somehow immune to yellow fever. And this was used as a reason for uh, pushing slavery, uh, that supposedly uh, blacks were immune to yellow fever, and so therefore they could go out and do all this uh, hard labor and and, uh, slave labor, uh, thus saving uh, the whites from having, having to do it. Uh, so um, I found that to be a very interesting kind of class, uh, class structure that developed in New Orleans. Um, and it was all a result of yellow fever. The cemeteries are so interesting there, the way they had to bury people above the ground because of the high water table. New Orleans is built practically on a swamp. And... Um, and one other thing, this doesn't relate to yellow fever so much, Richard, but I just wanted to mention it because I found it fascinating uh, when I was touring around the cemeteries there once that they uh, put the bodies in these concrete houses above the ground, uh, these small tombs, and the heat uh, would literally cook the bodies. And then in some cases uh, there were rituals for opening up these these tombs and then reinterring uh, the bones, but I, I just thought the whole thing was rather macabre the way uh, the dead were treated. Absolutely fascinating. Now, you mentioned eight thousand people died one year. That must be what close to ten percent of the population at the time. One in ten. Well, it was estimated that yellow fever in the epidemic years, uh, this went from about 1817 to 1905, that in the worst epidemic years, about 10% of the population would be wiped out. Wow. Fascinating. All right. When we come back, uh, let's talk about, well, here we go again, scientists claiming that the moaning sound made by spirits Probably just in our heads. I'm sure you'll have something to say about that. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, our Paranormal News Roundup, when The Conspiracy Show continues. Peering into the shadows, where the truth often hides. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And welcome back. And just a reminder, coming up in the next hour, psychic medium Siobhan Smith will be with us for the hour. Right now, Rosemary Ellen Guiley. It's our monthly paranormal news roundup. And once again, Rosemary, we have scientists, this time uh, in Switzerland, at the um, Ecole Polytechnique Federale in Lucerne, Switzerland, attempting to explain away ghosts and moaning spirits. Tell me about this study involving uh, virtual reality goggles and so forth. It's really a stretch to try and explain ghosts. And, you know, every year around Halloween time, these kinds of debunking stories uh, make the rounds. And this one, I think, just goes way over the top, although I agree that there's something to projection. Well, the the idea behind this is that um, it has to do with the neurology in the brain and that if we're out of balance neurologically, uh, we could project something into the environment that comes back to us uh, in a seemingly supernatural way, even even the experience of deja vu. And it's been likened uh, by these researchers to the phantom limb syndrome, that ghosts could be a kind of phantom limb that we actually project uh, into the environment. And they uh, attempted to prove this with uh, virtual reality goggles uh, they put uh, goggles on subjects and put them in an empty room, and um, then they had uh, images 
uh, of themselves uh, around them that were projected into the goggles, and then their backs were uh, stroked with a pointed stick. Well, these things don't happen to people who experience ghosts. Uh, most ghost experiences are unexpected. They're um, out of the blue. People hear things, see things, um, and they don't need virtual go- reality goggles to experience a ghost. So I think that's a bit of a stretch to di- try and demonstrate that the brain itself is solely responsible for apparitions. Uh, on the other hand, Richard, uh, over the course of my research um, many years, I have come to the conclusion that projections from consciousness do play a role in hauntings uh, because um, thought generates a lot of uh, energy. Emotions generate a lot of energy. And um, this energy can coalesce in things that can mirror back to us in hauntings. If someone, for example, is going through a lot of heavy, distressed emotions, that can project into the environment and, and perhaps come back in the form of a dark figure. And uh, if we go to a haunted place knowing it's haunted uh, and hoping to be um, spooked by a ghost uh, or to experience some phenomena, uh, we're going to be generating a lot of thoughts and emotions in that direction. So we, we wind up participating in the haunting phenomena our, ourselves. And how much of that comes into play in any given situation, it's really hard to say. But I don't think we can entirely remove ourselves from uh, paranormal phenomena. I love this next story. It came from the uh, the Daily Mail in England, and it talks about how the experiments that inspired Frankenstein, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, in the article, a history professor reveals all of these macabre medical tests that inspired Mary Shelley. Uh, things like electrocuting the dead, which was first public. I didn't know this. First publicly attempted back in 1803. Remarkable article. Tell me more about it. It really is very macabre, and uh, this year, by the way, is the 200th anniversary of the publication of Frankenstein, and I revisited it myself this year in celebration of that. Uh, Mary Shelley did pay attention to these experiments on the dead, and uh, it's it's a thing called galvanism, and uh, this was named after an Italian physician named Luigi Galvani, who experimented on frogs. And he discovered that uh, he could make frog legs twitch by uh, passing electric currents through them. And so the idea was that, well, maybe we could regenerate the dead through this kind of electrocution. And uh, there was one really bizarre experiment that uh, was conducted in 1803 on uh, a man who was uh, hanged for murder. And it was not uncommon for um, murder victims and the newly dead to be carted off to medical labs for all kinds of experience, uh, experiments back in uh, the 19th century. But this one was particularly bizarre because he was, uh, his body rather, uh, was electrocuted in various uh, um, degrees and it actually started to move. And, um, the newspaper, one newspaper account said that uh, the witnesses actually thought for a, a few minutes that the dead body was going to come to life. Uh, the hand raised up, uh, and it even clenched into a fist, and um, his legs twitched. 
and it must have been very spooky to watch this. I almost, uh, you know, it's a horror film kind of setting. And so we see that uh, playing out in Frankenstein, where uh, Victor Frankenstein takes, um, he, he actually assembles pieces of corpses and stitches them together and then uh, sends huge amounts of electricity through uh, the assembled body to animate it into uh, what becomes the unnamed monster. It is fascinating. Yes, I was particularly taken uh, when they when they described how this uh, condemned man, this hanged man, his his one eye opened when uh, his corpse uh, on the slab, and they administered electrical volts uh, to his body. His one eye opened. Um, and so, obviously, Mary Shelley was very inspired by this. What else inspired her? Do we know? Uh, we do. In fact, a dream inspired her. And uh, the famous story about um, they were, uh, she and, and her, I think he was um, her fiancé at the time, uh, Percy Bysshe Shelley. Um, and uh, they were visiting with uh, Lord Byron and his physician, John Polidori, in a castle in Switzerland. And uh, it was the proverbial dark and stormy night, and Lord Byron suggested that they um, they all concoct uh, creepy stories to entertain each other. And Frankenstein started that way. That was the genesis of the writing of Frankenstein. Um, Mary Shelley recorded a nightmare that she had uh, that night in which she saw the monster that she eventually wrote about. And she said he was so real to her, it was, it was like not a dream, and it terrified her. Uh, so she had uh, a number of very good sources uh, funneling into Frankenstein, um, which still is a creepy story today, even though it has a, a lot of strange holes in it. There are a lot of things that Mary Shelley doesn't explain very well in terms of how the action advances, um, but nonetheless... Uh, the idea of man creating life, of course, is the big theme of the novel. Right, right. And the idea, I mean, she was almost predicting the transhumanist movement in some ways, don't you think? Uh, well, yes. In fact, uh, Frankenstein is probably one of the outstanding visionary novels of its day. And uh, later on in the 19th century, Dracula, uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula would outshadow uh, her, you know, just kind of in, in terms of uh, the popularity, the monster popularity that, um, that it acquired. But um, Shelley's novel is, is still um, an amazing piece of visionary fiction. And we see uh, some of these themes playing out today through artificial intelligence, for example, and now we have bionic yes. people with body parts replaced, and uh, we're doing DNA experimentation and cloning and discussion of uh, creating hybrids. And uh, so we are literally now attempting to play God the same way that Victor Frankenstein did uh, in his crude way uh, in Shelley's novel. 200 years ago, my word, what a remarkable woman. The Cecil Hotel in Los Angeles, it's seen better days. It's not, it's in, I guess you would call it the dodgy end of town now in Los Angeles. But uh, tell me about the Cecil Hotel. Have you been? 
I have not, and I'm putting it on my must-do list because the things that have happened there make it an ideal setting for uh, ghost hunting, ghost investigation. Um, sadly, a lot of tragedy there, and um, it was built right before the Depression. Uh, it was very expensive. At the time, it cost $1 million, which was a tremendous amount of money. It would be about $13 million today. And uh, shortly after it was built, uh, the Depression happened, and it, it just started to slide and go into a decline. Um, there were suicides in the hotel. So many people in the Depression committed suicide from office buildings, hotels, and their homes. Uh, and um, suicides where uh, people overdosed or they threw themselves out of windows. Um, there was one really bizarre story um, about a naked woman who was found floating uh, in water tanks on the roof. And that was fairly recent. That was a, a, um, a young woman from British Columbia it, it was, who disappeared uh, there. Yeah. Yes, this hotel has had um, a string of, of tragedies and bizarre deaths since it opened. And what I found so eerie about the account of that was that um, there's surveillance footage of her in an elevator in the hotel, and she's acting like she's uh, trying to escape from something or somebody. And uh, even uh, there's a, a little bit where she gets out of the elevator and it looks like she's talking to someone in a very animated way, although they're not on camera. Uh, and we can only speculate what that poor woman went through to wind up dead then on, on the roof of the hotel. These uh, serial killers, uh, Richard Ramirez, who killed 38 people in the 1980s in California, used the Cecil Hotel as his headquarters. Oh, my. Uh, and all of these these kinds of violent tragedies um, make for horrific hauntings. And uh, it would not surprise me uh, if a lot of the rooms at the hotel were haunted. Uh, the people stay there might experience uh, residual ghosts and perhaps even unpleasant phenomena that are still lingering in psychic space from all of this. Well, if you go there, please don't stay there alone. Make sure you've got three, four, five, six other people. Well, if I if I do go there, it would be for an all-night vigil where I would be awake the whole night, and yes, I would <laughs> take somebody with me. All right, Rosemary, thank you so much. Uh, what's the next book? The next book, which will be out in January, is another fate anthology, and it's called Slips in Time and Space. And it involves uh, spontaneous time displacements, uh, teleportation, uh, time travel, the Bermuda Triangle, Devil's Sea, and the Philadelphia Experiment. Ah, oh, my favorite subject, time slips, time distortions. All right, can't wait to have you on to talk about that one. Uh, another fate anthology. Rosemary, always a pleasure. VisionaryLiving.com, the website. Thank you again. And thank you, Richard. All right, all the best. Talk next month. Next hour, psychic medium Siobhan Smith. Stay with us.